Turn with me, please, to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I almost forgot to start my stopwatch, and you know what that means. (laughs) Absolutely nothing, right? (laughs) Sorry. So the points that we gave you last time were, were this, and you may have those notes from two weeks ago. If not, I'll give them to you. Point one. Peter's credibility to predict Christ's return. We said of this that it was a supernatural experience, that Peter legitimately experienced hearing the very voice of God, as did James and John in the presence of Jesus, presence of a couple of Old Testament prophets as well, Moses and Elijah. Peter called upon this experience, which was unique, meaning only, It was the only time that such an experience had taken place to establish credibility against those who would have accused him of following or creating false tales so as to gain a following. There certainly were those in that day. There certainly are those in our day who do that. If I were to ask you, give me the names of 10 people who do that, you'd have no trouble at all. They're multiplying, it seems. Well, it's job security. If you can come up with new stuff, you can convince people that you're doing them some better good by what you're saying and what you're calling them to. And if you can sell books that say those same things, then you've got job security. And so there's a lot of motivation for false teaching today, any day, every day in in history. But Peter had credibility to proclaim the return of Christ because of that experience. But as you know, that's not where he rested. He mentioned it, and then he moved on. And this is not what he emphasized. Point two, then, being Peter's emphasis on the more sure word of God. He emphasized the need for you and I to give our attention to the more sure prophetic word, the more sure word of God given to us by the prophets. This was his emphasis, not his experience. He talks about the experience. We see it recorded other places in the New Testament. Peter by no means rests, nor does he ask you to give careful attention to his experience or your own. Peter says to us back in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this really kind of prefaces his explanation of your need and my need to give our attention to the more sure prophetic word. He's saying we didn't rest in that. We didn't rest in our innovative ability. That's kind of the buzz term these days, by the way, in the emergent church movement, seeker-friendly church movement. It's all about innovation. What can we do as CEOs, not pastors, not shepherds, What can we do as CEOs to make it more vibrant, do everything we possibly can to make it more enticing? And as Mark Dever has so wisely said, whatever you win them with is what you must keep them with. Whatever you do to gain them is what you must do to keep them. Our devotion is to promote and display the gospel with the undergirding bedrock of the sufficiency of the word of God. Think of it. If people are won by that, If that's all we really do, if they're one with the Holy Spirit's use of the Word of God in their hearts through faithful and sound teaching and counseling, because that is what we do, then certainly God would keep them. 
There are those who did and there are those who are still today uh, showing a commitment to vain teaching, to cleverly devised myths. As I mentioned to you last time, Jeremiah told us of them in Jeremiah 14, verse 14, when he said, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. This was true then, it's true today. Chapter 23 of Jeremiah, verse 16, Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. Do any names come to mind, by the way? I think they probably do. When you hear these words, they fill you with vain hopes about your best life today. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, right? They find an audience of those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you, and to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. What does the Bible say about the human heart? Well, those who don't want to believe what the Bible says about the human heart do everything they can to read the concept of free will into the Bible. Now, you basically are born with a clean slate. I had a lady tell me not too long ago, well, we're sinful, but we don't hate God. I tried my best to call her back to the scripture that tells us that you are born into enmity with God. You are born into a hatred for God. And yet, there were those then in Jeremiah's time, there are those today who will say, no disaster will come upon you if you just have a higher view of yourself. If you just think more highly of you, no disaster will, will come. Verse 21 I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. See the idea? There's a vigor in these folks. There's a passion for teaching that which is appealing. And it leads to gaining favor for the one who's teaching it. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied, God says. Verse 26, how long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Well, it won't go on forever. And that starts with exposing the reality that there are false teachers. You and I have a responsibility, and really there's a sense in which my responsibility is greater because as a mouthpiece of God's word, as a shepherd of the flock, I really bear the responsibility of wearing the black hat sometimes and telling you things that you might not want to hear. Certainly there will be people who, who will be offended by things we will say about certain false teachers in the coming days. When we get into chapter 2 of Second Peter, there will be a need for me to draw attention to those who have led people down a, a, a path of destruction and are continuing to do it today. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, speaking of next week, says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's usually really obvious, Right? Someone shows up and says, hey, I'm here with bad doctrine. And we'll see how it goes. No, it's very, very subtle. And I'm not going to say that it always starts this way, but I would say that many times it starts with a skewed understanding of the gospel. If you weren't here last week, you absolutely must go online and listen to Michael's message on the five points of Calvinism. And he said it well. He said, if you get soteriology wrong, everything else is wrong. If you do not understand the character of God and how he works, then everything else will be skewed. And many of you would humbly and honestly attest to the fact that this was the case in your church experience for many, many years. The Lord illumined your eyes, and you, you were humbled by the truth of God's sovereign character and his grace. I had a gal tell me many years ago, you know, I'm so thankful that God brought this teaching to us because it is soothing. The pressure is off. I no longer have to be deity myself, attempting to do something and maintain something that I never could have anyway. So my point here is, uh, as Peter is saying, that they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Start by saying something that's just a little bit wrong, testing the waters to see whether or not anyone will 
address it. Now, you don't want to be the church watchdog, and nor do I, who's dealing with every jot and tittle of everything that someone says. The truth is that love genuinely covers a multitude of sins, and it really takes a relationship. It probably takes more than one relationship to get to the place where you can legitimately address someone's false theology, but it's got to be done. Eventually, it's got to be done for the sake of that person who has been deceived by others. Peter goes on in verse 1 to say, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. We'll look closely at what's going on here. The master who bought them, what does that mean? We'll talk about that next week. But the point Peter is making here is that they bring destruction upon themselves. What you can know about folks like this is that they have zero spiritual victory. It's a dance. It's a double life. Why, why would Peter uh, warn us? Why would he be so committed? Why should you and I be so committed to warning against destructive heresies? Well, same reason Paul was in Galatians 1, verse 6. I'm astonished. See, see that? See, Paul's a shepherd. He's not only an apostle of the Catholic church, the worldwide church, he is also a shepherd of particular flocks that he planted. Paul's saying to these people who he had come to know to be faithful, I am perplexed. Remember when we were in this, when we were in Galatians, and the title of the message was, Has Truth Divided Us? And this will happen with people that you thought were Christians. He's saying, I'm astonished. Why is he astonished? Two reasons. They knew truth, they abandoned truth. More specifically, why is he astonished? They knew the gospel, they abandoned the gospel. More specifically, who is he talking about? He's talking about Barnabas. Guess who else he's talking about? The author of the book you and I are studying today, Peter. Now, he's not talking specifically to them, but he does reference their influence on the Galatians. And this was the matter over which Paul confronted Peter publicly. How did Peter respond? Well, we have First and Second Peter, and that tells you how he responded. He responded with humility. He responded with gratitude. He didn't respond with, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I've been looking at this stuff myself. He responded with a humble reception to reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And the Lord used him and continues to use him today. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. This is quite contrary, really, in polar opposition to the anathema declared by the Roman Catholic Church. It's exactly the opposite. In fact, if you want even more exacting opposition, go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where we were told that salvation is by grace through faith. Michael addressed that last week. The Catholic Church declares that he who says that salvation is by grace through faith alone, he's accursed. Because you've got to add works to that. Anything you add to grace is no longer grace. Jude 4. Jude, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What is it an attack on? Grace. It's an attack on grace, according to Jude. And you know, from the words of Jude himself, he started to write about something. And he said, I was overwhelmed to talk to you about this, false teachers in the church. So there are those today who are telling us that God is speaking to them today. You heard this. You may have said it yourself. They will say, God told me or God spoke to me. So we ask the question, does God still speak today? But we need to ask the question, why do we think that this 
text can answer that question. See, in this text is a record of hearing from God audibly, much like some would claim that they have. Although I am well aware, as are you, that there are those who don't mean that they've heard from God audibly when they say God spoke to me. But some do. Many do. Turn on TBN, you'll find a handful of folks who think that rather quickly. See, in this text is a record from hearing from God audibly. It is a voice that Peter declares to have been the very voice of God himself. This really was God speaking. Peter really could say, hey, God told me. I was standing there and God said, you heard people say it that way, right? I was really struggling, thinking about what to do and not sure, and God told me. Peter could say that. You and I can't. But truly, this was unusual in the biblical record. How many times can you think of where God spoke audibly in a way that people could hear? You might be able to come up with a handful, but beyond that, it's not much. And yet, today, it's prevalent. God's telling people stuff all the time, all over the place, quote, unquote. This really was God speaking. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. We heard the voice. It was the voice of God. Now what is not uncommon in the biblical record is the prophetic expression of God's word from the prophets. And Peter explains what this is not when he says in verses 20 to 21 that no prophecy of Scripture come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That's pretty clear. You know, as I read to you last week, and you've been over it many times in 1 Thessalonians, that Paul commends the Thessalonians for receiving the word of God as what? As the word of God and not as what? Word of men. He commends them for what Peter is pointing out to be a reality. That no man has ever landed on interpretation of Scripture himself. And yet, we'll talk more about this in a bit, but the knee-jerk response of modern evangelicalism to former Roman Catholicism, and even Roman Catholicism today, is that it was so controlling, it is so controlling, but praise God, I've got my Bible, and so I can sit and just interpret it myself, and that's all I need. And that defies the necessity of the provision of God's people to help us think rightly about Scripture and to come to proper interpretations. There's certainly much heresy today born out of people who think that they can just sit with their Bible and develop interpretations based on their experience with the Holy Spirit without the help of any other Christian. My first exposure to this was when I was 18 years old, 17, 18. I was a freshman in college. For the first time in my life, after having had really a pseudo-Christian experience for most of my life, I heard the gospel. heard the gospel in chapel. I heard the gospel from a, a couple of young Christians. I was involved in the theater. This guy came to me and said, we'd like you to be involved in this theater group, but we first want to know about your relationship with Christ. And I'm going, what does that mean? And he really began to explain to me from God's word what it means to be redeemed. And then within a month or two, I began to you know, get to know other people who just talked like that's how it works. You just have this relationship with Christ. I never heard of that. It was very foreign to me. I was walking from class uh, to another class one day. This very cheery gal was uh, walking next to me, and I don't know how the conversation started up, but she said to me in a very bubbly tone, so, you know, Jesus was telling me the other day, I mean, he does this to me all the time. It's so cool. Um, and I'm going, Jesus talks to you. 
Now, I didn't say it out loud because I don't want to look dumb, you know. I guess Jesus talks to everybody except me. Although not a lot of other people were saying things just like that, but she was so bubbly and so vibrant and so excited about it. And I sense, you know, looking back, she probably was just trying to impress me. But she went on and on about this stuff that Jesus was telling her. And she didn't mean as she was reading her Bible. She just meant, you know, they were talking. I don't know, at lunch. I'm not sure. That young gal turned out to be a prostitute. Now, it doesn't always work that way, right? Just so you know, I'm not saying that every person that says uh, God spoke to me is engaged in that. But she was living a double life. Now, that is not unusual. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. The person who declares that God is speaking to them is declaring something, first of all, that's not true. But second, at the very best, they've done little homework, if any, to assess what they're telling someone. In verse 19, Peter goes on with these words. And, and, and this is what he emphasizes, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully than what? More fully than his experience. Peter could tell you of his experience, but he could point you to the prophets who've never changed. He can't point you to his experience. You can't go there. He certainly doesn't point you to your experience or mine. So while Peter has established his and James and John's credibility for declaring the second coming of Jesus Christ, instead of resting in or emphasizing his experience, rather he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which, to which, you do well to pay attention, and then he illustrates it, not just to you know, pay it some attention, but he illustrates it in such a way that helps you understand how valuable the Word of God is. It's like a lamp in a dark place, and we've all been there, where we have wished for a lamp or we were thankful for one. We wished for a light that would guide us through the darkness, or we were thankful that we had one. Well, last time we met, we looked at some wrong reasons to give your attention to the more sure prophetic word. I'll give you a couple more. Last time we mentioned that one wrong reason to look or to give your attention to the more sure prophetic word is to gain ammunition to disprove those with whom you agree. Now, let's just find these verses to go against those verses. You got a verse? I got a verse. You know, so you get into this tit-for-tat, kind of a parrot dance with someone, hoping that the last verse mentioned was yours. You don't want to do that, right? You don't want to be the person who's just a naysayer against something that you don't agree with. You want to be taught. You want to understand truth. You want to know it rightly. As I mentioned last time, men who are unchanged by truth are only interested in using it to twist their opponent's arms with it rather than to be changed by it to be sanctified by it. This is not difficult to see in someone's life. Someone who drinks, as Peter talks to us about in 1 Peter 2, the person who drinks from the Word of God the way Silas drinks from a bottle, my year and a half old. <laughs> Last night at dinner, he was such a sweet little baby, right? And then all of a sudden, everything changed because he couldn't get his hands on the bottle. But when he did... You know, there's this voracious, frantic, you know, drinking it down. And then he kind of relaxes. Yes, I snorted, I know. Because he did. I was just quoting him. And then he kind of calms down. He's, you know, but that's how you and I should be with the Word of God. Rather than going to it to say, you know what, that guy's not right. I'm right because of what this says. You know the difference. You know the difference in your life, and the truth is you know the difference in other people's lives. This is not, it's not difficult to observe. Another reason not to give your attention to the more sure prophetic word is to impress others. Enough said. Third, another bad reason or a wrong reason to give your attention to the more sure prophetic word is to validate your experience. How many times have you heard that? Well, I had this experience, and I know it was from God because Scripture confirmed it. What in the world do you even mean by that? 
it's really hard to understand what someone might mean by that. And I think most of the time they're going to say, well, I had this experience and I saw that experience in the Bible. That does not validate your experience as being from the Lord by any means. And by the way, there are plenty of experiences in the Bible that weren't from the Lord. They were just recorded in Scripture. I want to say this. I think it's important to say this. Enjoy your experience. We are by no means saying live a dull and, and boring and painful life that doesn't enjoy your experience with Christ. In fact, we're, we're saying the exact opposite. What we're saying is because of sound theology, because of the sufficiency of the scripture, because of the closing of the canon, live in light of the truth that is not a moving target, that you can get your arms around, that you can drink down voraciously and grow from. Let your experience be born out of that rather than looking for your theology in your experience, and you will do so much better. You will do well, to quote Peter. Psalm 139, verse 17 says this. David says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. See what he's doing? He's praising God. He's adoring God because of God's thoughts. And he by no means is saying that he fully understands God's thoughts, but he talks about the vastness of them, where he says, how vast is the sum of them? And he says, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. And many of those thoughts of God are toward David, and they're toward you. So enjoy your experience in Christ. We don't want to throw a wet blanket on your experience. We, we want that to thrive. We want it to be exciting, joyous, happy in the midst of trial. Don't use the Bible to validate your experience as being from God. It's an utter misuse and abuse of God's word. That's not what God's word is for. Another wrong reason to give your attention to the more sure prophetic word is to simply have spiritual knowledge. You know, knowledge puffs up, right? You know that from 1 Corinthians 8. Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So he's, he's saying we understand the matter of idolatry, particularly in regard to meat offered to false idols. He says this knowledge puffs up. He's saying, so what, that you have that knowledge? It doesn't really matter. But love builds up. It sounds a lot like chapter 13, doesn't it? So... If you have all these things, but you have not love, then you are as a clanging gong, you know, loud and obnoxious, not helpful. You know some stuff, so what? You're telling people what you know, so what? If you don't love. A person who simply has spiritual knowledge or just biblical knowledge or theological knowledge is not necessarily adhering to the spirit behind Peter's command to give your attention to the more sure prophetic word. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 8 to say, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul, neither Paul nor Peter are saying knowledge is not important. Paul's just saying there that knowledge can and does puff up if that's all it is. If it's without love, it puffs up. It's like a clinging gong. But as you know, Peter has called us to knowledge. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, you remember, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now listen closely, unless you're reading it, and read closely. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There's much debate today about how sanctification works. And there's this camp that says, you know, you just look at Jesus. You just, you know, set your mind on him, and it really is Keswick theology. It's just let go and let God you just do nothing. Well, that's heresy. But looking at Jesus is a big part of sanctification, and this is why we believe that. Looking to Jesus. I had a great discussion with a pastor friend of mine. We had lunch together this week, and he said, i got a theological question for you. And he basically said, how do you think sanctification works? We do know Philippians 2 tells us that we are to work out our salvation knowing that God is at work both to will and to work for his good pleasure in us. 
So there's your part and there's God's part. Your part, I want to be very clear, is not to just look at Jesus, but that's a big part of it, and that's what Peter's talking about. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You can be a godly person. You don't have to pretend to be a godly person. In fact, please don't pretend to be a godly person. That's dishonest. But the word of God has given us everything necessary for that in what? In the true knowledge of him. You've got to know Jesus, right? You have to know him. You have to have intimate gnosko knowledge of him, with him, to be in him, to be one with him in essence. But you also need to know him increasingly. And yes, that is a big part of how spiritual growth works. Now, what am I talking about as far as the other element of it? I'm talking about obeying the Bible. You see a command in the Bible, you obey it. The person who flippantly, in a cavalier manner, scoffs at his own life by saying, yeah, I'm not really too good at that. That is not intimate knowledge of Jesus. Intimate knowledge of Jesus leads to obedience to his word. And that whole matter is under tremendous attack in the seeker-friendly church today that just says just have an experience with him despite really getting down to the details of what the Bible says about him. That's not much emphasized at all. So knowledge is included in Peter's words in chapter 1 among the qualities with which we are to supplement our God-given faith, right? God grants faith. We are to supplement that, as you know, from Peter in verse 5, he says, supplement virtue with knowledge, right? Be committed to virtue, to an excellent moral life, but supplement that with knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of Jesus. Supplement that knowledge with self-control. Be willing to exercise self-control, even when you don't feel like it. Verse 8, 2 Peter 1, verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you gain right knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Go back to this chapter and work through those qualities. Ask yourself, am I committed to adding these things to my faith, as Peter has commanded, knowing that if I will, and if I will be certain, as Peter commands, of my calling and my election, he commands that, then the result will be that I will not be ineffective in the knowledge of him. But every single one of you can attest to the fact that you yourself at one time in your life, and probably people that you know today, are struggling with a miserable pseudo-Christian experience because they've got some awareness, some knowledge of the person of Christ, but it's not growing as Peter here says, these things are to be increasing. They are yours, you possess them, but they are increasing. You're growing in them, and the result is that you're growing in the knowledge of the person of Christ. The result is you see him more and more and more as a God of sovereign grace. And the result is that you want to obey him, you want to serve him, you want to serve the body. You want to have right attitudes toward people, and so when you have bad attitudes, you address it. You don't just say things like, well, you know, I'll just let it go. Deal with your own heart. You're willing to deal with the conduct of others because you love them. Verses 12 to 15, Peter states three times. Remember this? He states three times that he will continue to remind them, the readers, of these qualities so that they will remember and continue to practice them even after his death. Peter was committed to promoting these qualities, one of which was knowledge, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And by so doing, <laughs> he can confidently say when he dies, I've done what I needed to do to prepare you for that time after my death where I'm no longer there to assist you with these things, but it's in your mind. You've taken every thought captive to the obedience of Christ by meditating on these qualities. So knowledge in and of itself should not be the goal of giving your attention to the more sure prophetic word. It should be for gaining knowledge of Jesus Christ. See that? See, this should really saturate your every preparatory moment for being in the word of God. Now, now think of it. I'm not going to ask you to answer aloud, but be honest with yourself about this. Is that what I do when I sit down at the word of God or am I looking for ammunition? 
You go to the Word of God looking for a greater and more accurate exposure to the person of Jesus Christ so that you yourself would become more like him. See that? If you can preface every moment that you spend in the Word of God with a deep and passionate commitment to that mindset, God will begin to nurture the relationships that are such constant frustration for you. He'll change that. In 1 John 1... John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know what is it that really leads to unity? It's a right view of God's word. It's a high view of God's word. John is pointing to the fellowship that he had with the Son and with the Father. And he draws attention to the word of God. It is a right view. It is a high view of God's word that leads to that ability to fellowship and to go further and walk in the light. What does that sound like? It sounds like Peter's call to us to give our attention to the more sure prophetic word as to a lamp that shines in a dark place. Similarly, we see from James, James 1.16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You see the same mindset. The Father who exposes that which is in the darkness. The God who rightly, in his word, brings light upon that which is hidden in the darkness. I told you last time that evil multiplies in the darkness. How do you expose that darkness? Well, first, start with the darkness in your own heart, as should I, by being in the Word of God. Personal time, as well as sitting under sound teaching, being willing to assess the teaching that you're getting off the Internet or wherever else to determine whether or not it's so. The uh, Bereans were commended for doing that, right? You and I should be commended as well. He says of the Father of Lights that... There is no variation or shadow to change. He doesn't vary. There's no shadow of that which is pure light. You get that? That's the illustration. You and I, uh, when we're standing outside and the sun's over here, we cast a shadow over here. There is no shadow with God because he is light and he doesn't move. So with every genuine approach to God himself, he brings light upon all things. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved, James 1, 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. The context is the word of God. Be quick to hear the word of God. Slow to speak. <laughs> I think... All of us, at least a time or two in our lives, have been too quick to respond to the Word of God with some sort of personal interpretation based on experience. Be slow to speak. Be willing to drink deeply from the Word of God, trusting that in the right timing, the Lord's going to give you proper interpretation through the right methods. Be slow to speak and slow to anger. And this, obviously, is a reference to hearing the word of God taught with accuracy and responding in anger to things that you don't like. Don't do that. Why? He explains why. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You see what's going on here? What James is doing here by juxtaposing an interest in receiving the word of God against a willingness to allow wickedness to fester in one's heart. You've heard the phrase, if you're not killing sin, it will be killing you. 
dusty Bible leads to a dirty life. If you're not bringing the word of God to bear upon your own heart, looking for sanctification, not just looking for a mechanism against those with whom you disagree. If you're not constantly subjecting yourself to the pure light-producing word of God, chances are there is some filthiness or rampant wickedness hidden that you think will never be exposed. It's very common. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Wickedness is a bottleneck spiritually. Devotion to something. It's really easy for people to get defensive when a preacher brings this up. The better thing to do is to say, you know, maybe I'll just examine this in my own life privately. He's probably not talking about me specifically. But on the other hand, I should probably take it personally. It's the far better approach. One has to be willing to do a spiritual assessment, to do an inventory of his life spiritually. What are the chances that the conflicts of your life can be traced back to you? You might be at fault. Specifically because of something that's being harbored in your life that you're not willing to expose, root out. How so? You give your attention to the Word of God. And as you know, that doesn't simply mean, James would tell us, right? That doesn't simply mean that you read the Word of God and then you take a nap. A nap might not be a bad idea sometimes. But there are things in the Word of God that you must what? You, you are a hearer of the Word of God and you are a what? A doer. You must be a doer. So the person who knows, you know, really knows his Bible, but he's not really doing much or all. That's really the right way to think of it. He's not doing all the Word of God calls him to do, and he's got some sort of caveat in life. Well, my situation is different. Your situation is different from time to time, and we want to be sensitive to that. You need to be sensitive to that in other people's lives. But there will come a time where you are able to be subject to the body, serve in the body. The body is nurturing the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. That's the best evangelism, by the way. People look on, know us by our love, one for another. Well, Peter, back to Peter, says this. Give your attention to the more sure prophetic word until. And you can stop at this point, by the way. You can stop giving your attention to the word of God. At the point, the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus tells us what the morning star is. If you're wondering how we know what the morning star is, he says in Revelation 22, at the end of the Bible, in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He rises in your hearts not only in your hearts, but when the day dawns and the morning star appears, you will have fullness of Christ in your heart, the return of Christ. You'll have no need for your Bible. You don't need it anymore. You'll have him. Alexander Nisbet helps us with, I think, how all this works. In his commentary on Second Peter, he says, Yet shall the word give comfortable direction to all that follow the light of it under all the crosses, confusions, and difficulties. And those who make it a lamp to their feet and a light to their path may be sure to get at last such a clear and satisfactory sight of Christ as shall banish all darkness and doubts and such a near union and fellowship with him, the bright morning star, gloriously present by his spirit in their hearts and personally also in human nature, conversing with them forever, that they shall have no more need of word or ordinances, which is the condition here described by the apostle only to be expected in heaven, till which time we will never be above the direction of the word and use of the ordinances. 
1 John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Do you think about that? That there is coming the day when the morning star will rise, and the day will dawn, and you will literally see the person of Jesus Christ physically. I was doing a funeral one time, and an airplane flew over, and they couldn't hear me anyway, so I just stopped and looked at the airplane. We all watched as the airplane went over. I was in 1 Thessalonians 4, and so I said, just as you saw that airplane, one day you will see Christ. Literally, this is not a fairy tale. It's not a cartoon. He's coming back. And you'll see him, and guess what? If it is, in fact, the practice of your life to do well by giving your attention to the more sure prophetic word, you can be certain that you will be made to be like him. You will be in a glorified state. The imperfections that limit your and my abilities today to see him rightly will be taken away. There will be no pain, no suffering, no tears. We will worship him in perfection. Romans 8, 29 helps us with this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, one more time, and in the verse we memorized for today, right? In Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, that we've been predestined for what? Holiness and blamelessness. Much the same here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be Conformed. Now think of it. When you see someone who claims to know Christ and he's not being conformed to the image of Christ, have mercy and compassion for that person because he's deceived. He thinks that his decision, or whatever it was, led to become a Christian, becoming a Christian, and yet he has no real interest in Christ-likeness. Not humble. But for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He speaks permanently with perfection of what will take place in the future. In that glorified state, you will see him as he is. My hope would be that you and I would long for that day. And of course, this section wouldn't be complete without a quick look at Philippians 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, right? You're, you're an alien here. We know that from Peter and from Paul. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So again, that day is coming where you will be in a glorified state. You will not be sovereign. You will not be deity, but you will be glorified. The spiritual imperfections and the physical imperfections, the emotional imperfections, if we want to go down that road, will no longer even be a distant memory because you will be like him. So Peter says in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. As I alluded earlier, the knee-jerk response of the modern evangelical church against the controlling methods of the Roman Catholic papacy is to force an equally off-center pendulum swing and believe that because I have a Bible, that's all I need. It's a platitude, and it's not helpful. To believe that church history means nothing. There's no greater arrogance than that of a person whose view of his experience is so high 
that he thinks he doesn't need a faithful shepherd teacher in his life. He doesn't need Spurgeon. He doesn't need Edwards. He doesn't need Luther or Calvin or any of the Reformers or the Puritans or Augustine or Chrysostom or even the Apostles. All he needs is a good cup of coffee or if he's a Presbyterian, a beer and a Bible. That's all he needs. But Peter says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Even the very best lingual exegesis requires a systematic theology handed down to us by faithful men throughout the ages whose theology can be traced back to the apostles. You might say, but why don't we just go straight to the apostles? Because they're dead. But why don't we just, you know, go to... To their words in the word because there are false teachers and there have been in every era and we are commanded to refute and destroy their false teaching and we need the help of faithful bible expositors to ensure that we are not arriving at new false interpretation and that we are not carried along by the holy spirit as the apostles were you see that plenty of false teachers will take the apostles words and twist them happens all the time so you need more than just the apostles' words. Why? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Those who were carried along by the Holy Spirit were used of God to give us his word, and you are not. You and I are not carried along. The scripture never says we are carried along, especially in the context of the dissemination of God's word by the Holy Spirit. Only the prophets. I think William Barclay can uh, help us with this, as he has said. The Spirit gave the prophet his message. The obvious conclusion is that it is only through the help of that same Spirit that the prophetic message can be understood. As Paul had already said, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2. As the Jews viewed the Holy Spirit, he has two functions. He brings God's truth to men and... He enables men to understand that truth when it is brought. So, Scripture is not to be interpreted by private cleverness or private prejudice. It is to be interpreted by the help of the Holy Spirit by whom it was first given. Practically, that means two things. First, throughout all the ages, the Spirit has been working in devoted scholars who, under the guidance of God, have opened the Scriptures to men. If, then, we wish to interpret Scripture, we must never arrogantly insist that our own interpretation must be correct. We must humbly go to the works of the scholars to learn what they have to teach us because of what the Spirit has taught them. Second, there's more than that. The one place in which the Spirit specially resides and is specially operative is the church. Therefore, Scripture must be interpreted in the light of the teaching, the belief, and the tradition of the church. God is our father in the faith, but the church is our mother in the faith. If a man finds that his interpretation of Scripture is at variance with the teaching of the church, he must humbly examine himself and ask whether his guide has not been his own private wishes rather than the Holy Spirit. It is Peter's insistence that Scripture does not consist of any man's private opinions, but is the revelation of God to men through his Spirit, and that, therefore, its interpretation must not depend on any man's private opinions, but must ever be guided by that same Spirit who is still specially operative within the church. End quote. But many would say, but what about the fact that there are those who disagree? And that further affirms the point. There are those who disagree, many of whom are not under the guidance and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. They just sit with their Bible and think that they come up with their own conclusions, and they find some sort of affirmation on the Internet and think they're right. But what has the church always taught, always believed? You say, but there are areas, and I know that, where the church has been divided on certain issues, and they are secondary and tertiary issues. And they must be investigated, and we must do our best to get them right. But the person who so easily runs off into the wild blue yonder of saying things like, well, nobody ever agrees on anything, that's a bad starting place. The far better and really the only starting place is to recognize that God, the Spirit, 
carried along the writers of Scripture. And in so doing, he, that same Spirit, has enabled us to understand what he has given to us by the use of the church, other faithful Christians. You know this from Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And some folks have absolutely no trouble with sitting alone with their Bible or maybe in a group of friends, again, with something on the Internet that they've found, and coming to some conclusion that's unheard of and thinking that it might actually be true, which would mean that the church has always been wrong if there's this new interpretation. And this is the passion of the charismatic movement. You know, whatever pops into somebody's mind, and what will they say? Well, God gave this to me. Anybody remember Robert Tilton? Robert Tilton was the first false teacher that I ever watched. And then it was Kenneth Copeland. And I would watch these guys, and especially Robert Tilton. He would stand there and he would say, ooh, hold on a minute. And then he would say something and he would attribute it to the Holy Spirit. He's a liar. He said all kinds of things. Some of the things he said were right, and so he gained credibility with people who thought, well, it's in the Bible. But much more of what he said was wrong, and he became very rich. As far as I understand, he's still in jail. Can't be long enough. Revelation 22, 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. But you see, a low view of God's word doesn't take these passages seriously. It says it's really not that big a deal. Let's not get too wound up about this. I mean, I know lots of people who say that God speaks to them. Why is it a problem? Because God says the person that adds to or takes away from the word of God will be proved a liar by God. First of all, that's a problem. He's proved a liar. Second, it says that he will not inherit eternal life. It's a problem. It's for you and for me to be committed to the canon of Scripture. On that note, the canon, a word that means a measuring rod or standard, the canon of Scripture is and has been closed since the first century. There's been no new information from God since the first century. God spoke as recorded in the Old Testament. He was silent for 400 years. Now think of it. The people who say that God's speaking today have no problem saying he was silent for that 400 years. But they don't want to be alive in an era where God's not speaking, even though that was that, the period where he wasn't speaking. No problem with that, but they've got a problem with it today. God gave us the completion of the Bible in the first century, and that's what we have. But you might say, but I'm really, really convinced that I heard God speak one time. And I would say, lots of people have been really, really convinced of things that never actually happened. It's because you thought it happened doesn't mean it happened. That's a high view of your experience as over against what the Bible teaches. If you're still convinced that it was God, how will you answer the question, how do you know? Right? Is that, is that an unreasonable question to ask someone, how do you know that that was God? And then it becomes a personal offense. How dare you question me? If you're not willing to be questioned, then you have declared yourself to be the standard of truth. How do you know? It's a good question. Some might say, because it lines up with Scripture. Well, maybe you mean you remembered something from God's word, or maybe you mean that you believe God moved on your heart to remember his word. If so, then say that. Why not just say that? I think God's moving on my heart. He's reminding me of what his word says. Say that, lest you be deemed a false prophet who says God told me when he didn't. Or you might say, or maybe you know someone who might say, but I just really want to hear from the Lord. Justin Peters said, if you want to hear from God, read your Bible. If you want to hear from him audibly, read it out loud. Now, who's Justin Peters? From his website, I took this quote. At age 16, I went to see Nora Lamb and R.W. Schambach in hopes of being healed of my cerebral palsy. This is what began my interest in the word faith movement. This should have been a warning sign in and of itself for a couple of reasons. One, the very fact that when I went to see faith healers showed a real lack of spiritual discernment and maturity at best. One cannot be spiritually mature and lack discernment at the same time. 
Spiritual and biblical discernment and maturity go hand in hand. They are two sides of the same coin, end quote. Today, Justin Peters has a very vibrant ministry intended to expose the power of the gospel and the falsehood of the charismatic word faith movement. He had a very, very similar experience to Johnny Erickson Tata, who showed up at an event where they were told they would be healed. And when they came in, they were assessed, and it was quickly determined that they had legitimate illnesses. And so they were moved to an area behind the stage where the camera couldn't see them. So the camera was only upon those with fake illnesses who were said to be healed. Johnny Erickson taught a attests to that to this day. And if anyone, think of it, if anyone has the spiritual fortitude and the great faith to be healed by faith healers who say they're getting additional word of God, would it not be Johnny Erickson Tata? And I think Justin Peters could be included as well. So what are we talking about when we talk about the closing of the canon? I want to give you a quick quote from Michael Kruger in his 10 basic facts about the New Testament canon that every Christian should memorize. This is an excellent article. It's very short. If you want access to that, you can listen to the message later online or come to me. I'll be happy to give it to you. He says this, The shape of our New Testament canon was not determined by a vote or by a council, but by a broad and ancient consensus. This historical reality is a good reminder that the canon is not just a man-made construct. It was not the result of a power play brokered by rich cultural elites in some smoke-filled room. It was the result of many years of God's people reading, using, and responding to these books. He says the same was true for the Old Testament canon. Jesus himself used and cited the Old Testament writings with no indication anywhere that there was uncertainty about which books belonged. Indeed, he held his audience accountable for knowing these books. But in all of this, there was no Old Testament church council that officially picked them. They, too, were the result of ancient and widespread consensus. In the end, we can certainly acknowledge that humans played a role in the canonical process, but not the role that is so commonly attributed to them. Humans did not determine the canon. They responded to it. In this sense, we can say that the canon really chose itself, end quote. So in the Bible, you often read these words, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord says, or truly, truly, I say to you, this is, in fact, the word of the Lord. So when someone today says, God told me, it's important to know what they really mean. What is the result of understanding the difference? You understand the significance of the statement in the Proverbs and in Revelation and elsewhere of the severity of adding to or taking away from God's word. The person who says, God told me, ought to really think long and hard about what he's actually saying. So for all those times you have said or have heard someone say, God told me, don't you want to rephrase that? Don't you want to have the opportunity to point out that such a statement is to add to God's prophetic word? So then, does God still speak today? In a sense, yes, that in his word is the ever true expression of his mind and heart, right? It's living and active. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews says? But ultimately, no. No. God is not speaking today in that he is not providing new revelation. And so all the more important for you and I to be discerning about how we think about this and how we talk about this. Do we have a high view of God's word? We certainly say we do. But are we willing to consider the possibility that someone else has information that fills in the inadequacies of God's word? You've heard the phrase, I'm open but cautious, right? Believing that maybe the sign gifts are actually still in practice today. I would be cautious about a person who says they're open and cautious. It is clear in the New Testament record that the sign gifts, not all the gifts, but the sign gifts ceased in the first century as the Bible records. 
some would say, well, I know Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 13 that certain gifts will cease, but where does the Bible say they have ceased? The Bible records that they ceased because there's no record of them after the book of Acts. And a very short section in 1 Corinthians explains the distortion of the gifts. The church fathers, the Puritans, the reformers record that the signed gifts ceased. And yet there are some who would say, no, God's still speaking. God is still speaking. Friends, his word is complete. The canon of scripture is closed. And rather than putting such great emphasis on ourselves and on our experiences, we ought to read Colossians 3. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching, right? How do you establish in your own mind the willingness to go to someone with the word of God if it is not currently dwelling richly in you? How dare you? How dare I? If the word of God is not currently dwelling richly in me, we have no business teaching or admonishing. But if you are, then you must. If you are currently allowing, letting the word of God dwell richly within you, then you must teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms. We're about to do that. And hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So do that. Let the word of God dwell richly within you. May it dwell richly within you and may you admonish and teach with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs leading not only to your own increasing thankfulness but the thankfulness of those around you. Some practical helps before we finish. Go to our weekly devotional guide. Every single week, right after church, Peter Bober sits down and fills in the data on the weekly devotional guide, giving you the privilege to read the Word of God right there. We've got six or seven different Bible reading plans that make it so easy for you. Also, the songs that we're going to sing next Sunday will be on there this afternoon. Make that a regular practice in your life. If you're struggling with getting into the practice of letting the Word of God dwell richly within you, we've provided this for you for several years now. The next thing I want to suggest is find someone who will who'll help you. Maybe you need someone to begin discipling you, or maybe you just need a partner in Scripture memory and Bible study and prayer. That's what you should do. That's what you and I should do with this passage. We can answer the question, does God still speak today? But the far greater question is, what are you and I doing with what he has spoken? Father, thank you for the rich joy that you've given to us as a local church to, to enjoy your word. Spend this time together with a concentrated time of entering into your presence and loving you, enjoying you, strengthening each other. And I pray that in this moment we would really legitimately put this into practice, that we would, in fact, sing to you, but that we would also obey the Scripture where we have been called to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, teaching and admonishing each other, instructing and warning each other about the true character of God, that we'd be subject to you as you've displayed yourself in your word. And we ask this all for your glory. Amen.